It is a privilege to be here with you on this beautiful December morning. Can anybody else but me believe that it's December already, though? Anybody else feel like the year has just absolutely flown by, and here we are now in December? December is a wonderful time of the year, though. It's one of my favorites. There's things that only happen in the month of December. In my house, my children know that Dad will now let them listen to Christmas music. Uh, In my house, we will buy and drink as much eggnog as we can, because this is the only month that we can buy it. In December, my cookie consumption will grow to much greater than it is the rest of the year. Uh, In December, we're going to argue about whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie or not, which it is for the record. And, And last but not least, in December, we're going to celebrate Christmas every day watching Hallmark's Countdown to Christmas movies all month long, right? And we often make fun of Hallmark movies, but we still watch them. Every one of us has, because if we didn't watch them, we wouldn't be able to make fun of them. So we all watch them. And some people love Hallmark Christmas movies. And some of us, we won't openly admit it, but we enjoy them even just a little bit, right? They're familiar. They're comforting, right? They're like a bowl of our favorite ice cream. We joke that the plot is the same in every single one, but that's also part of the appeal. We know what we're going to get. We know the emotions that it's going to invoke in us as we hear and see that movie over and over, right? It's the same story. Big city career girl, Samantha, she inherits the mountain lodge from Aunt Jane, who she hasn't seen in 20 years. She travels to the town that looks like it should be on the front of a postcard because she's going to sell the lodge. Once there, she falls in love with Nick, the flannel-wearing handyman and single dad that she hired to help with repairs. But before the happily ever after, though, before her and Nick can get married, there's always a conflict. That is the trademark of every Hallmark movie. Something always happens that puts true love in jeopardy. The ex-boyfriend, the disgruntled distant relative, the greedy land developer, whoever it is shows up and creates a mess that threatens absolutely everything. And we already know how the movie's going to end because we've seen every other Hallmark Christmas movie. But for a moment, we're held in a brief state of suspense and anxiety. We know the conflict's going to be resolved, but we don't know how. But in the end, love wins, the problem is fixed, the conflict resolved, and the audience is satisfied. And then we come back for more. This isn't just a Hallmark formula, though. Every great story needs a great conflict. History is filled with conflicts. Nations rise and fall around conflicts. The best sports victories come about because there was a conflict that needed to be overcome. And the greater the conflict, the more satisfying the resolution. The more desperate the situation, the more inspired we are at the positive outcome. Our passage this morning also contains a conflict. In the verses we're going to look at, the Apostle Paul will discuss a significant conflict. Arguably the greatest conflict that has ever existed. The conflict between a holy God and sinful man. A conflict brought about by sin. A conflict that resulted in the separation between the creator and his creation. A conflict where we who were made in the image of God are enemies of the one whose very image we were made to reflect. A conflict where lost and dead souls sit under the wrath and the impending judgment of the righteous judge of heaven and earth. In our passage, Paul is going to paint a very vivid picture of this conflict. He's going to take us into the past to remind us of who we were, what was important to us, 
and what once awaited us. He's then going to contrast that picture with a reminder of who we are now, the work that has been done in us, and the blessed future of what now awaits us. He gives us a before and an after comparison. But Paul doesn't just focus on the before and the after only. He doesn't just hold up two pictures side by side and highlight the differences between the two. Rather, Paul focuses on and highlights the God who resolved this conflict. Paul brings to our attention the one who did the work in us. He exalts the one who brought about the mending and the reconciliation between God and man. And in doing that, in drawing our attention to Yahweh, to his son, and to his work, Paul puts the greatness of God on display. He causes us to marvel at the love, the mercy, and the grace of the one who sent his son to resolve our desperate conflict. My prayer this morning, as we walk through our passage, is that you will also marvel as we're reminded of who God is, as we're reminded of what he's done for us. My hope is that as we look at this familiar passage, it would be like standing before the Grand Canyon of God's character, and we would have our breath taken away by the immensity and the majesty of who God is. And that as a result of that, we would grow in our worship and our affection of him. So turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2 and let's read our passage together. I know your notes say that we're going to be covering verses 1 through 10. Uh, That was the initial plan, but we're actually going to cover verses 1 through 7 today. Verses 1 through 7. Ephesians 2 chapter 1 through verse 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Great God, just reading this passage before even having a chance to talk about it brings about a soberness and a joy at the same time. Father, the soberness comes from being reminded of the terrible, ugly nature and effects of sin, the joy from being reminded of your saving grace, being reminded of the immeasurable riches of your love. As we walk through this passage this morning, God, let us see you. Let us see your character. Cause us to marvel at your salvation and cause us to live each day in light of that salvation. Amen. Because we know that every part of Scripture is inspired, every part is the inerrant word of God, and all of it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training, it can feel a little awkward sometimes to say that we have a favorite section or a favorite book of the Bible. And it's not because we want to diminish any other verse or any other book of the Bible, but sometimes there are just certain passages, certain books, that the Lord has used in specific ways to grab us to clarify things in our lives, to challenge us, to encourage us, to convict us. If I was asked my favorite book of the Bible, it would be the book of Ephesians. 
There are so many passages that I love and I cling to and I've grown from my study from them, but Ephesians is the book that I turn to most when I'm discouraged, when I'm battling sin, when I need to be refreshed. There's a simplicity and a practical nature to the book of Ephesians. It's often broken up by commentators into two halves, with the first half being Paul laying out doctrine and theology, and then the second half being the practical application of that doctrine and that theology. I think sometimes in the church, though, we have the temptation to separate the two, right? We place theology on one side, and we give that to church leaders, to pastors, to elders, to the Bible majors, to the seminary students. That's their realm. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we see the regular church attendee, the person's just sitting in the pews, the non-leadership people, they just need the practical side of things. We, we treat it as if they're two separate pursuits when the reality of it is is that they are intricately intertwined and they are the one and same pursuit. Theology is simply the study of God and his truths. How I live practically is the result of what I believe about God, what I believe about the world he created, what I believe about how he says to live. My theology is going to dictate every decision and choice that I make, how I respond to life and its trials, its struggles, its situations. So in Ephesians, Paul does that very thing. He ties the two together, not just giving commands to obey, but first laying the theological foundation of what we need to have as we obey. In this letter, Paul lays out clear and concise doctrines. He covers things like salvation, adoption, election, the church, who God is, what God has done, who we are in Christ. And as a result of these truths, he's saying, live this way now. Respond this way. Put God on display this way. Put his plan on display this way because of these truths of who he is. Theologian John Stott has said of the book of Ephesians, the whole letter is thus a magnificent combination of Christian doctrine and Christian duty, Christian faith and Christian life, what God has done through Christ and what we must be and do in consequence. In chapter one, Paul starts by blessing God for how he has blessed us in Christ. He starts to list the specific blessings of salvation. He discusses how in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, God chose us to be his holy people, set apart for him. Paul describes that not only did God save us, but he also adopted us. And God could have simply wiped our debt away and then sent us on our way. That relationship could have simply stayed as king and subject, master and servant, but he didn't. Instead, God took us in. He clothed us. He fed us. He adopted us as his children. The relationship we have with him now is one of a loving father. And we receive the benefits and the inheritance, not that a servant gets, but of a beloved child. Paul describes the redemption and the forgiveness that we have in Christ. He talks about the grace of God that has been lavished upon us. He discusses the inheritance we have as children of God and the fact that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. And the reason for it all? Paul says multiple times in chapter one that it was according to the purpose of God's will. It was according to the purpose of his plan, which was set forth in Christ. It was according to the counsel of his will and his plan. In describing the wonder and the beauty of salvation, Paul mentions nothing about us. There's no talk of how God needs us. There's no talk of what we bring to the table. There's no description of any redeeming quality that any one of us possesses and God wants to use it, so therefore he saves us. No, salvation is of the Lord, Paul says, solely because it was his plan, solely because it fulfilled his purposes, solely because it was according to his will to redeem his creation. Paul wants us to know that we had no part and no say in our salvation. And as he transitions to chapter two to our passage this morning, Paul presses this point home even more. And you were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul's presenting our great conflict now. We've just talked about salvation. We've discussed the beauty and the wonder of it, but now let's talk about you, Paul says, and what we're gonna discuss is not good. We might wonder a little bit, why'd you do this, Paul? Why not let us revel in this great salvation a little bit more before you start talking about how ugly we are? Because Paul wants us to understand the conflict. Because the greater the conflict, the more desperate the situation, the more we'll marvel at God and his wondrous resolution. Often, I think, in life, we forget the conflict. We've forgotten our need. We've forgotten our desperate situation. Paul wants to remind us of what we've been saved from. He wants us to remember who we were. He wants us to remember what was important to us. He wants us to remember what awaited us while we were in that condition. And then he wants us to remind us of the truths that we know, but so often we have a tendency to forget. This is not the only time that we see Paul do this in his letters. He reminds his readers many times of their past in his other epistles. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul writes, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Peter also writes of the need for us to be reminded of biblical truths. In 2 Peter 1, 12 through 13, he writes, Therefore, I intend to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Even in the Old Testament, we see Moses doing this. During his sermon to the children of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, as he's summarizing God's deliverance, God's power over the 40 years of desert wandering, he reminds them over and over of the ways they've disobeyed, the ways they were unfaithful, the ways that God was faithful, and then he warns them about forgetting God's deliverance, though. In Deuteronomy 4.9, he says, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart. In chapter 4, verse 23, he says, take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And describing how life in the promised land is going to be good and they're going to have houses and their crops are going to be blessed, Moses warns the people in chapter 6, verse 12, and he says, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And he continues that idea of needing to remember and not forget over and over and over in those first few chapters of Deuteronomy. And I believe Paul is doing the same thing here. Right? In proclaiming the blessings of salvation, Paul wants to remind us of why we needed that salvation to begin with. He wants to remind us of the gravity of our situation before we were saved. He wants us to feel the desperate nature of our conflict with the holy, righteous God. And I believe, as I've already mentioned, he does that because we're prone to forget. Sometimes we forget simply because we're distracted. In the busyness of life, in the craziness of our schedules, we forget who we were and our need for God to intervene, but it's not necessarily a malicious forgetfulness. It's a forgetfulness that's caused by simply letting other things grab our attention and distract us from purposing to remember. This is the type of forgetfulness that I've seen in my son, and I did get his permission to use this example this morning. But when I tell him to go clean his room, he goes upstairs and 30 minutes later, I go upstairs and nothing's being cleaned. And I say, buddy, I told you to clean your room. And he's like, 
uh, I forgot. Well, why did you forget? Because he was distracted by his Legos or by his toys. He wasn't necessarily rebelling in that moment, but other things came in, distracted him, and he forgot what he was supposed to do. Other times, though, we forget who we were out of pride. Right? We think a little too highly of ourselves. What do I mean by that? Well, us Christians are pretty special, right? We're not stupid like the rest of the dumb world around us. Can you believe they actually believe all those silly and awful things? Can you believe they actually live in that way? You ever heard yourself talk like that? Because I have. As if we're better than the unsaved simply because God saved us. R.C. Sproul describes this temptation in this way. He says, we're not really surprised that God has redeemed us. Somewhere deep inside, in the secret chambers of our hearts, we harbor the notion that God owes us his mercy. Heaven would not quite be the same if we were excluded from it. We know that we are sinners, but we are not surely as bad as we could be. Paul wants to remind us we are as bad as we could be. That's his point. I remember vividly in my own life this truth of pride coming into play many, many years ago when I was new to law enforcement. I had gone to court one particular day, and when you're not in a trial, when it's not actually before a jury, you just sit in the jury box waiting for your case to get called. And so I remember sitting in court, and while I was waiting for my case to get called, there was a suspect who was being sentenced. And he was being sentenced to over 200 years in prison. And there was surrounding him were multiple other law enforcement officers providing security. And so I asked one of the other district attorneys who was there, I said, what did this guy do? Why this big attention? Why this sentence on him? And so the attorney told me what the guy had did, and it made me sick to my stomach. I was absolutely disgusted by it. And my response, though, in my mind, was I thought, why are we even doing this? Why are we going through with sending this guy to jail? Let's just execute him. Because if he died, the world would be a better place. That was what happened in my heart. And I wrestled with this. And as I drove home, I continued to wrestle with this, just being disgusted by what this guy did. And then Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 1, came to my mind. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And the reminder of this truth broke me. I thought to myself, how could I dare think of myself as less of an affront to God's holiness than this man? How could I dare think of me as being more deserving of the grace and the mercy of God than this man? Because there but for the grace of God go I. And that's what Paul wants us to remember. He wants us to remember the state we were in. He wants us to remember how helpless we were. He wants us to remember that we were dead. And there are no levels of death. One person is not more dead than another. This is not like the movie The Princess Bride where the main character is only mostly dead. Right? Without God, we are all dead. I was no less dead in my sin than that man in the courtroom, regardless of how that sin manifested itself in my life. Paul's describing a condition here that we are in. He's saying there was no life in you. You can't help yourself in any way. There's no good in any sinner. It doesn't matter whether that sinner is a serial killer or whether they're an eight-year-old child. All have fallen short. None seek for God. And the result of that is that we are all dead in our sin. A recently deceased dead body is just as dead as the badly decomposed dead body. Neither one has the ability to do anything but stay dead. And that's what Paul wants us to remember. Regardless if you have a testimony where God miraculously saved you after a life of crime or whether you're a child who grew up in a Christian home, 
and came to know the Lord at a young age and God's grace protected you from that lifestyle, we were all dead in our sin. And in addition to being dead, what else does Paul say about us? We were followers of the world and followers of the prince of this world, according to verse two. When Paul is referring to the world in this message, he's not referring to the actual earth. He's referring to worldly ideologies, to worldly philosophies. He's referring to those that are not part of the kingdom of God. This is the world that Jesus said hates him in John 15 and will hate us because we are not of the world when we are in Christ. It's that world that Paul is referring to here. But Paul reminds us that we were part of that world though. We walked in the godless ways that the world perpetuates and promotes. We were with those who hated Christ. We numbered our lot with them. We followed what the rest of the world followed and they followed the prince of wickedness, Satan. He's the leader of this godless system. And the world gladly stumbles along, blindly following him, reveling in the debauchery that he and his demons promote. That's who we were, Paul says. Spurgeon described our relationship with Satan in this way. He says there was a peace between us and Satan. When he tempted, we yielded. Whatever he taught us, we believed. We were his willing slaves. It says that he's the prince of the power of the air here. Many commentators believe the power of the air refers to Satan's demons who do his bidding. They are one with him in spreading his wicked worldview. In their hatred and in their rebellion toward God, Satan and his demons are at work in this world, working to influence it for evil and create a course of disobedience and wickedness which the sons of disobedience walk in. We see that on display in our world today. You can't watch the news, read an article, without being amazed at how wicked and evil our world is. And it seems like rather than getting better, our world is putting its foot on the gas and continuing to drive towards more and more wickedness. And guess what Paul says though? You followed in that same course. You were a son of disobedience. You followed the same path. Paul is graphically expressing the magnitude and the depth of our depraved state. You weren't just a sinner who was dead. You were also a follower of Satan and the worldview and the wickedness that he represents. And because of your deadness, because of you following in this path, verse three, what was important to you was your wicked, selfish, and sinful desires. You had sinful passions, passions that were depraved and unchecked and they caused you to pursue your own wanton satisfaction. What was important to you was fulfilling the sinful desires of the body and of the mind, the things that pleased you, things that missed the mark of God's holy standard and character. The creator of heaven and earth set forth a standard that we could not and did not meet. And not only could we not meet God's standard, we reveled though in the pursuit of our wickedness. We gleefully wallowed in our sin like a pig wallowing in the mud. We enjoyed it even though it brought us no satisfaction. And the result of this, Paul says, is that we were children of wrath, the end of verse three. What does that mean? It means we sat under the impending judgment of a holy, righteous, and just judge. It means that we were on the precipice of God acting in a manner consistent with his character and meeting out justice upon us, a justice which we deserved. I don't think I could see it any better than Jonathan Edwards did in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Edwards says, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. 
You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful and venomous serpent is in ours. What a visceral picture Paul's painting here of who we were before Christ saved us. James Montgomery Boyce says of these verses, this is a deplorable, desperate, heinous condition. And I believe that Paul wanted to convey that. He wants us to feel the weight of this deplorable and desperate condition because it makes what comes next shockingly beautiful. It makes it amazing. It makes it magnificent. It makes it breathtaking and utterly marvelous. The seriousness and the depth of our conflict has been pictured. The hopeless and helpless nature of our situation has been depicted. And now Paul writes words so beautiful, so wonderful. They break through with a brilliance greater than the brightest sun on the darkest day in verse four. But God, but God. Boyce says the intervention of those words and what they represent make all the difference. Those words change everything. Martin Lloyd-Jones says these two words in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The weight that we were feeling of everything that Paul had just said has been lifted now as he turns our attention to God. Your situation was bad. It was desperate, but God intervened. You were lost, but God had a plan. You were helpless and hopeless, but God had a resolution. God had a means of salvation and reconciliation for you, for me. Why? Why would God save such ugly wretches? Because in the riches of his mercy, in the abundance of his grace, he loved us. He loved us with a great love, it says. Yahweh loved the unlovely. He cast his care upon those who did not deserve it. And he rescued, ransomed, and redeemed them. He made us alive. He rescued us from our helpless estate. He breathed life into us. He made us new creations in Christ because of Christ at the expense of Christ. The God who is faithful chose to love an unfaithful people. Because of the depth of his great love, he chose to bestow mercy on a sinful people. He withheld from us the judgment we deserved because of his great love. Because of his great love, he graciously gave us that which we did not deserve. Eternal life, a relationship with him, an inheritance in heaven. When he did this, God's wrath and his justice was not set aside though. So often we think of God's attributes as working independently and separately from one another. When we focus on God being a loving God, we tend to think that his wrath has gone away and that's not the case. All of God's attributes are connected together and they work in conjunction with one another. And so when God is merciful and showing love to us, it's not because he set his wrath aside, it's because his wrath was fully satisfied on the cross in Christ. Right? To become our father, to adopt us as his sons and daughters, his wrath, his justice was fully satisfied on his own son. That's the gospel, 
The answer to our great conflict, the answer to our desperate situation, the conflict between us and a holy God is the gospel. It's the good news of how God made a way of salvation for undeserving sinners. It's the truth that the holy, righteous, just God of the universe, before the foundation of the world was laid, he looked at me, and for reasons unknown to me, reasons that I can't understand, I can't comprehend, because I brought nothing to the table, there was nothing of value in me, there was nothing lovely about me, there was no merit in me, but Yahweh still looked at me, and he said, I choose him. I choose Mark Madrid, and I give him to my son. And because I've chosen to redeem him through my son, in my son, for my son, because of my son, I then punished my son by pouring my full, unrelenting wrath, anger, and justice on my son for the sin that Mark Madrid committed. And now I credit Mark. I give Mark the righteousness of my son. When I look at Mark, I view him and I treat him as he lived the life that my son lived because I treated my son as if he lived the life that Mark lived. And as a result of that exchange, as a result of that transaction, I adopt him as my son. I will treat him as my son. The broken relationship that I had with him is now a reconciled one because of my son, Jesus Christ. Mark is no longer dead. I've made him alive because of my great love for him. The same great love that I have for my son. And God says the same thing for each one of you who sit here today redeemed in Christ. Stop and revel in that truth for a moment. Think about it. I mean, truly think about it and meditate on it. We've reflected on who we were this morning, how bad our situation was. Now stop and reflect on who God is. Reflect on what he's done for you in raising you with Christ. Reflect on God making you alive. Reflect on the work that he has done in us. Reflect on the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is not just the good news. The gospel is the greatest news ever. Nothing else is more important than this. Nothing else comes close to this. Nothing else means more than this. And our response should be one of wonder, praise, joy, gratitude, humility, declaring the greatness of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. There can be no pride in my life when I preach the truths of the gospel to myself because I'm horrible, I'm a wretch. If I truly have a face-to-face encounter with the divine holiness, it will break me. Sometimes, in that separation that we have of theology and practical Christian living, we face the temptation to become proud of how much we know about God. And we've lost sight of the fact of do we actually know God, though. I can know all the facts in the world about God, and that's all they are is facts, if I don't know him. When I know him, There is no pride. When I know who God is, what he's done for me, who I was in my sin, it can do nothing but humble me and break me. Like Isaiah, we simply have to say, woe is me, for I'm a man undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. This was the response of Moses in Israel in Exodus 14 and 15 as well. 
Standing on the edge of the sea, a group of recently freed slaves sees their destruction and their doom bearing down on them. The the powerful armies of Egypt are chasing them now. They're going to take them back to Egypt, and they're terrified. They've got nowhere to go. There's a a, a sea in front of them. Their situation was desperate, their destruction sure. But God, but God intervened. He parted the sea. He destroyed Egypt's mighty army. He rescued his people. Why? Why? Because of his great love for them. And at the end of chapter 14, it says the people saw the great power of the Lord and they feared and they believed in him. Their response to their deliverance, their response to seeing God's power on display, their response to his intervention was to then in chapter 15, sing a song of praise and declare his greatness. They exalt God for his power and strength. They revel in his steadfast love Their praise culminates in verse 11 when they declare in their song, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Ephesians chapter two also puts the power and the strength and the steadfast love of God on display. Our passage also shows his deliverance and his rescue of an unworthy people. Is our response the same as theirs? Do we respond to what God has done in our lives with praise and wonder? Do we marvel at his greatness, at his graciousness, at his mercy? Do we declare his greatness? Do we tell of his deeds? Do we sit in awe at what God has done for us? Paul's not done yet though. He's detailed the impending judgment that we were under in our state of being lost and dead. But now, after highlighting what God has done for us and in us, he also wants us to know what now awaits us. Verses six and seven. We are raised with Christ. We are seated with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Did you catch that at the beginning of verse seven? In the coming ages. You mean there's more to come? Everything Paul's just covered about God's grace and his mercy and his immeasurable love, everything that already should shock and amaze us and bring us to awe and wonder and worship of him, that's not enough? There's more to come in the coming ages? We're gonna see more of his immeasurable riches, of his grace and his kindness in Christ? Wow, that's what awaits us now. Because of what God did, because he intervened, I'm no longer a child of wrath. His judgment is no longer hanging over me. That sentence has been removed and he says, this is your inheritance now. I'm gonna raise you with Christ, in Christ, to be in heaven with me and in heaven he's going to continue to lavish his love, his grace, his mercy and his kindness upon us and we won't be able to measure it for the rest of eternity. This is our before and our after pictures. This is who we were. This is what we pursued, and this is what awaited us. But God, but God intervened, and because he did, this is who you are now. This is what has been done in you now, and this is what awaits you now. With those truths kind of fresh in our mind, let's look back a little bit at chapter one now. Because we read that beautiful chapter describing the blessings of salvation. But after 
studying chapter two, I think we can go back and it gives us a little bit more insight into chapter one. We look at it a little bit different. Maybe certain phrases or words stand out a little different. Ephesians one, starting in verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which God? The one that intervened in chapter two, verse four. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He's describing the blessings that we have, the blessings we will have in the coming ages. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption. What kind of love? The great love that was talked about in chapter two. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, that immeasurable grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, the immeasurable grace that's still to come even, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Paul wanted to paint the picture of who we were and who we are now, but what he wanted to do was not forget the one who brought about that change though. He didn't want us to just see the two pictures and be amazed and forget the link of the fact that it was God and God alone who brought about this work in us. So what are some of the implications though and the applications of these specific truths of what God did in us? How about first of all for our assurance? Every one of us at some point in our lives either has or probably will struggle with the assurance of our faith. How can I really know if I'm saved? What if I missed something? What if somehow I mess it up? Anybody struggle with that? Let's just be honest about it. I know I have. I know so many other people who have. Let's go back to what we studied here though. I was dead, but God made me alive. There was nothing for me to mess up. I was already dead. I was lifeless. God loved me when I was unworthy and undeserving. In the legal transaction that occurred at justification, God treated Christ as if he lived my life and he treats me as if I lived Christ. I had no role in that transaction. I had no part of it. I was simply the recipient of it. So I couldn't mess anything up because I wasn't involved in it. There's nothing for me to miss because it was all God. What if I'm not good enough though? We struggle with sometimes. I still battle my sin. We're not good enough. That's the whole point of what Paul's saying. If we were, then we'd have something to do with our salvation. But because we're not, it's all about God. It's all about Christ. It's all about what he's done. That's why it came solely from him and his goodness. We can never be good enough to earn or to merit our salvation. And that's what makes it so wonderful. That's where my hope and my comfort's gonna come from now if I'm battling assurance. Is it wasn't about me clinging to God, it's about the fact that God rescued me and he won't let me go. What about our obedience and our sanctification? Because of what God has done, I'm no longer dead in sin. I'm alive in Christ. I still battle the remnants of sin. I'm still gonna struggle with it, but I'm no longer enslaved to it. The very same power that rose Christ from the dead and gave him victory over death is the same power that raised me up in Christ. I now have the ability to obey God in a way that I didn't before because I'm alive, 
because I'm not dead in my sin. And so now I'll do that out of love, out of joy, out of gratitude, and a desire to reflect him and put him on display and put his plan on display to the lost world around me. I am a new creation in Christ. So because of what God did, I now have a position in Christ that I didn't have before. And because of that position, I can be free from the effects of sin Not perfectly in this earth, that's coming someday, but I can be free from its hold and its power and I can have the victory that Christ has already had. That which was true of me is no longer true. Steve Lawson says it this way, God isn't put off by brokenness, weakness, failure and sin. He simply declares them not true of us anymore. He is saying you have new identity, saint, chosen, adopted, redeemed and forgiven. How about in our evangelism? How could we not want to tell those in the same predicament as us about the wonderful, marvelous God who saved us? We know how desperate our situation was. We also know how desperate their situation is. And we know how beautiful and how wonderful and how marvelous our God is who rescued and redeemed us. Why would we keep that to ourselves? Why would we not want to exalt the name of Yahweh, the God of grace and mercy and great love to the lost and the dying world around us? We've been given the cure to the deadliest disease that has ever existed. Why would we not share that cure with others suffering from the same disease? When we think about what God has done, when we think about who we were, We should shout it and scream it from the rooftops. And I've got nothing to be embarrassed by. That's usually what stops us, right? I'm afraid of what people are gonna think. I would gladly have them think ill of me and share with them the truth of who God is and what he can do in their lives than bottle that up inside and let them go willingly on their way to hell and to judgment. How about our ability to trust God? in life's trials and circumstances, right? Life's hard. It's gonna have difficult moments. We still battle sin. We face trials. We face the effects of living in a sin-tainted world. We're gonna lose jobs. We're gonna have marriage difficulties, financial hardships, maybe deal with rebellious children. We're gonna face health issues, physical illnesses and ailments. And in those moments, I can preach these same truths to myself. If God loved me enough to rescue me from destruction, if he has the power to make my dead heart alive, then that same love and that same power will sustain me through life's trials and difficulties. He's already shown me his great majesty. He's shown me his strength. He's shown me his love and his grace. I'm not gonna doubt him now. I'm not gonna question him. I'm gonna rest in who he is and what he's done for me, and I'm gonna be able to say whatever my lot, it is well with my soul. If you are here this morning and you don't have a reconciled relationship with God, if you are in the midst of this great conflict still, you're still his enemy, you're still sitting under his wrath, Paul says he loves you with a great love. He's rich in mercy and grace. Run to him now and repentance and know the joy of being made alive in Christ. We're gonna have some people here to my right by the door who would love to meet with you and pray with you and answer any questions that you may have. Church family, 
for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who he has rescued from destruction. This truth of God's intervention, this truth of what God did, his plan of redemption, this is your story now, Paul says. You were dead, but now you are alive. You were lost, but now you are found. You were an enemy, but now you are a son. Now you are a daughter because of God, because of his great love, because of his son, because God intervened, because God decided to come into our conflict with those two beautiful words, but God. This is our story now. This is our song. And as we close now and sing our final song, let us praise and exalt our God and our Savior all the day long. Let's pray. God, as we look at a passage like this, as we think about the truths that it reminds us of, Father, we can't do anything but be lost in wonder and awe and amazement that you chose us, that you rescued us, that you loved us. And so, Father, I pray that these truths would bring us comfort, that they would grow us, that they would encourage us, that they would challenge us. When we wake up tomorrow morning, God, let us live in light of these truths, that we are alive in Christ. When we face the temptation to sin, may we remember, Lord, that you've already given us victory over sin. Lord, when we're struggling, when we're hurting, may we remind ourselves of your immeasurable grace your immeasurable mercy, and your kindness, which you lavished upon us in your son because of your son. We pray these things in your name. Amen.